You know, on one hand, it's retaliation against something that Disney said. And that is quintessential no-no under the First Amendment. You're not supposed to, you know, retaliate against someone for someone's speech. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Tuesday, May 9th. Today, I'm joined by Eric Gardner to talk about the ongoing legal war between Ron DeSantis and Disney. With DeSantis set to launch a presidential campaign in the coming weeks, Eric explains why this chapter in the war on wokeness could end up in the Supreme Court. And later, Bill Cohan and Ben Landy game out what Warren Buffett was really thinking when he became the biggest shareholder in Paramount, which just lost billions of dollars in value. Is there still an exit strategy for Buffett and a Hollywood ending for Sherry Redstone? We'll discuss all that and more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Are you tired of sleeping hotter than hell? I sure am. I sleep hot. There's something crucial about sleep that eludes us when we're too warm, too uncomfortable, and too caught in the web of our own thoughts to drift off. And while curiosity fuels our days, science tells us that cool sleep recharges our nights. That's where Chili Pad by Sleep Me comes in. Meet the bed cooling system that elevates the quality of human life through cool sleep. The ChiliPad bed cooling system is your new bedtime solution. I love it. It lets you customize your sleeping environment to your optimal temperature, ensuring you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up refreshed. ChiliPad works with your existing mattress. It's a water-based mattress topper that continuously controls your bed temperature from 55 to 115 degrees, allowing your body to rest and recover. This isn't just about escaping the heat, it's also about optimizing your sleep for better health, more energy, and improved physical and cognitive performance, which I obviously need hosting a podcast. Chili pads are designed for one or two sleepers, so if your sleep partner likes to sleep at a different temperature, or you only need it for one side of the bed, that's okay too, and we know that's crucial. Plus, you can schedule automated temperature changes to trigger deep sleep. But when I'm at home, Chili Pad solves those problems. So trust me on this one. Visit sleep.me slash powers to get your chili pad and save up to $315 with code powers. This offer is available exclusively for powers that be listeners and only for a limited time. Order it today with free shipping and try it out for 30 days. You can return it for free if you don't like it with their sleep trial. Visit www.sleep.com. Dot M-E slash powers, because you're not just investing in better sleep, you're creating a better life. Happy Tuesday, everybody. It seems like, according to various reports, that Ron DeSantis is going to enter the presidential race at some point in the next few weeks. But in his home state of Florida, DeSantis is waging an ongoing war against Disney over quote-unquote, wokeness and the don't say gay bill. I think a lot of people out there know this is happening, but don't totally understand some of the legal aspects of this fight. And so, as the sun rises on DeSantis 2024, I thought Eric Gardner would be a great guest today to help us understand what this lawsuit is, who's up, who's down, what are the stakes. Eric, how are you, man? I'm doing great. So, We know this goes back to the don't say gay bill, which was a bill DeSantis passed with the help of the Florida Republican controlled legislature 
to basically ban discussions around sexuality, gender, elementary schoolers. And it actually empowered parents to, to sue schools uh, and, and educators over this. DeSantis has made that signature of part of his campaign against wokeness. Florida is, in his words, where woke goes to die. But take us back to the beginning of this case. What happened that set off this fight? Yes, that's right. Florida had passed a new law, um, basically, about what could be taught in classrooms and, you know, what topics were verboten. And at first, Disney, you know, was, was being very politically careful about it, but it had some of its own employees kind of speak up about it and put pressure on leaders. And then eventually uh, Disney uh, made their own stance about it. And then DeSantis kind of reacted to that. And he he said, you know, this is the an example of a woke company. And he kind of, you know, seized the opportunity to, you know, stoke the culture wars and kind of used Disney as, as his punching bag. So it's it's escalated for months and months and months. And one thing that DeSantis has been harping on about is how Disney World is is some sort of fiefdom where, you know, Mm -hmm. Disney has written the the laws and chosen whether to enforce those laws and has its own district. And so, you know, in response to the wokeness of Disney, uh, he got his people at the Florida legislature to pass a a law and to kind of like retake the area around Disney World. That was scheduled to happen uh, earlier this year. And right before it did happen, Disney used still control over the board to pass some last minute stuff, land use development contracts that let them, you know, basically do whatever they want for the next 10 years. And when that came public, you know, (laughs) everything hit the fan. It it, it just, you know, exploded and now it's in litigation. So, we know that in many states, especially Republican states, uh, you know, governors create tax breaks and incentives for companies to come there and thrive there and, you know, leave Illinois and leave California and leave New York, come to Florida, come to South Carolina, etc. One element of this I don't totally understand, though, is this special development zone. And what power does Disney have? What sort of independence, rather, does Disney have with this zone going back to like the 60s? And then what control does the state of Florida have over the zone and what exemptions does Disney have? This is all sort of confusing to me. Right. If you took away the DeSantis stuff and the culture war stuff, I think, you know, one could make a good case that Disney should not have this self-governing district. Now, what happened was that, you know, uh, Disney took over this area and Disney argued that it needed extreme latitude to build up as quickly as possible. And this district basically gave them the ability to to invest a lot of money in in Disney World to, to basically like move forward really fast without, you know, going through the bureaucracy of zoning and and all that. So there are good reasons for it and there are reasons against it. Uh, It's true that there's not many areas in in this country that are kind of like self-governing districts where the corporation gets to, you know, basically rule. And Disney has it and this has been there for decades. And it hasn't been too much of a problem over this time. I bet most people didn't even realize that this was the state of being until very recently. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. As part of this culture war thing, uh, you know, DeSantis decided to point it out and basically rip it away from from Disney. And that's where you know some of the like tough legal questions start coming in because you know on one hand it's retaliation against something that Disney said, and that is quintessential a no no under the First Amendment. You're not supposed to you know retaliate against someone for someone's speech. On the other hand, it might be a good rationale to say, you know, Disney shouldn't have these breaks if Universal doesn't at the mm-hmm. at the nearby Universal Studios. Companies should be on equal footing. Um, so if it was just purely that rationale, I think that DeSantis would be, you know, within his, um, you know, right to grab back um, this area and say Disney shouldn't have these breaks. The problem is that it got messed up in, in a lot of this other stuff. And now Disney is basically suing and saying, you know, you're violating our rights. And and you're doing this against the First Amendment. You're you're taking uh, you know our valuable property without compensation, and that's where the intrigue begins. Does Disney, does the park at least in Florida, pay taxes though to the state of Florida? Uh, there are taxes paid. There there are certain tax advantages to the whole program, but as far as I understand it, there there are still you know lots of taxes paid. You know, Florida is a state where famously there's no you know state income tax, and they rely heavily on you know tourism dollars and taxes that that tourists pay. So ob- obviously, you stay in a Disney resort, you're going to to pay taxes. The people who work at Disney World, they you know go out and they. Spend spend things and they pay sales taxes. And, and there, there's there's many different ways where Disney World contributes to the economy of Florida and that contributes tax revenue as well. So, you know, I don't think that Florida has much of an argument to say that, that Disney is winning financially against them. I think it's more of a, a question of power and control. I mean, DeSantis and, and the people in the Florida government, they say, you know, Disney has, you know, passed all these fire codes, but, you know, they're not really enforcing the fire codes. And shouldn't there be an independent governance body that comes in and, and, and does that sort of thing and looks after mm-hmm. it? And, you know, it's a good point. The problem is just how everything went down, not necessarily that they don't have a good point to begin with. Some of the political analysis of this stuff, um, I slightly disagree with, like, it's not great if DeSantis loses a fight with Disney. Disney has a 80,000 employees in the state of Florida. They're one of the most popular brands in the entire world. But I think the thing that Republican primary voters, at least notionally, are aware of is DeSantis is at war with Disney over wokeness. The reason I don't think there'll be like a ton of political fallout for him if he loses this lawsuit in the courts is the lawsuit is about these arcane things like land use and governing boards and bonds. (laughs) Um, What is the lawsuit itself and what is the status of it? Yeah, first of all, I I disagree with you slightly. You know, I I think that for for a, a certain, you know, a portion of the Republican electorate, yes, it's all about wokeness. But I think there's also a portion of of the Republican electorate that cares about good business, and yeah, that ca- right. and cares about being an effective leader. Um, and I think that to the extent that that DeSantis is losing a battle with Disney, I think that reflects poorly on him. As for yeah. the the lawsuit, you know, I think that it's being primarily examined right now from from a First Amendment perspective. But I, honestly, I think that real legal issues is about where this is going to play out. Disney uh, filed a lawsuit in federal court 
because plainly they wanted to dodge all of DeSantis's appointed judges. Um, and the question really is, is that a, you know a proper maneuver? Mm-hmm. DeSantis uh, and Florida, they filed in state court. They, they're suing Disney as well. And you know they basically saying that this is a local issue. And mm-hmm. so I think for the next year, we're gonna have like, you know, a back and forth that plays out about who actually has jurisdiction over this battle. It's not going to be about the merits of the case and, and you know, who is right and what were the reasons, but it's just gonna be about, you know, where, where this plays out. And, you know, this is the sort of issue that could go to the Supreme Court. Eventually, it will get to the merits and the question of whether Disney's uh, First Amendment rights were violated. And in that respect, the interesting legal part is going to be, you know, when there's mixed motives, what does that mean? Uh, DeSantis might have had as part of his motive to retaliate against Disney, against his expression. Um, but he also, you know, might have been of the mind that, you know, no company should have special advantages over the other. And so it's, mm-hmm. the question will be, you know, he has good motives and he has bad motives, which are the ones that kind of outweigh the other. And uh, so it's a it's a very very interesting legal fight, and I think that this this one's going to be going on for years. You are you are right though. I should point out, like the in my time at least covering Republican governors, like I, I did it for so many years before Trump came along. Spend time with Chris Christie and Nikki Haley and Rick Perry, and like that generation of Republican governors, like the Chamber of Commerce pro business crowd was like <laughs> more important than the NRA and the Baptist church for certain Republicans. And like the idea of a Republican governor in a low tax right to work state going hard at like one of the most like popular private companies in a state is very much a departure from past Republican politics. But you know, wokeness, it does some crazy stuff. Eric, thank you so much, man. My pleasure. Welcome back to The Powers That Be. I hope you enjoyed the commercial break and that you are very excited for our next guest, the one and only Bill Cohan. Hey, Ben. Always great to be here. Bill, I know that Peter and John were talking on Media Monday about how badly Paramount whiffed on its earnings. The stock is now down more than 25% since last week, which is really pretty incredible when you consider this is now something like a $11 billion company, maybe even a little bit less today when we're recording this. But I wanted to talk to you about the other big mystery surrounding the future of Paramount, which is the role of Warren Buffett. Berkshire Hathaway, Buffett's conglomerate, bought up a huge amount of the stock last year, and he's now the single biggest shareholder of Paramount. He's got about 15% ownership of the equity in the company. And it's kind of confounding. I mean, I, I guess we don't know exactly how much he might have gained or lost on that investment. The stock was briefly lower than it is now at, at one point last year. So we don't know exactly over what time frame he was accumulating his stake. But help me with the logic of this investment. Like, What does the Oracle of Omaha see that the rest of us mortals don't? Well, well, Ben, first of all, you're right. It's uh, incredibly down to uh, an $11 billion valuation I think the only logical explanation uh, for why Warren Buffett now owns 15% of the stock, largest shareholder, and by the way, that includes being larger 
by 50% than the Redstones, uh, who only own about 10% of the economics of this company, although they uh, control nearly 80% of the voting. So, you know, the expectation here for Sherry combining these companies back in 2019, by the way, after her father had split them apart more than a decade earlier, and of course there was uh, a major lawsuit that got uh, tabled in Delaware court trying to keep them uh, apart for, for various reasons. She prevailed. The lawsuit got withdrawn. We don't get to need, go into the gory details of, of all of that. Uh, but Sherry prevailed, combined the companies, and basically it's been sinking like a stone uh, in the equity markets uh, ever since, except for a, sh- a brief period as a meme stock during the pandemic. I think that the expectation has always been that this is a company that's going to get gobbled up and that Sherry combined them to make it easier to sell, which, you know, ironically, I think uh, has made it harder to sell because I think if it had been two separate companies, the old Viacom, the old CBS, it probably would have been easier to sell at least one of those companies. So now I think she's got like, you know, kind of a poison pill ironically, uh, uh, with this company because, uh, you know, the most likely buyers already have a TV network, Disney and Comcast, and they already have a movie studio. Uh, so they can't exactly buy Paramount Global and keep the Paramount movie studio or CBS. So to me, this is a, um, regulatory nightmare. It's a mystery. Warren Buffett refuses to answer directly uh, why he bought this company, he bought the stock of this company, spending more than a billion dollars to do it. Uh, He's had a few times that he's been asked this, most recently on Saturday uh, at the uh, Woodstock for Capitalists annual Berkshire annual meeting uh, in Omaha, and uh, he's not answering it, so we don't know. Yeah, Buffett's always been a little bit pessimistic about the streaming industry, which, and for good reason. I mean, the, the, currently, the economics of that business are terrible. There's too many people there. They're they're highly competitive. They are struggling to raise prices, and very few of them are profitable. And nobody's giving up. Like, you know, there's nobody who's saying, oh, my God, I, I'm dropping out of this race. They're all still competing. You mentioned in your reporting the other day that Another potential theory for why Buffett is in this stock is that actually he didn't pick it himself, that he has these these underlings, his potential successors, Ted Weschler and Todd Combs, maybe one of them are the ones who kind of convinced him to get into Paramount. I mean, I, I assume he would have had to still sign off on that. I mean, him and Charlie Munger are still running this company, right? Yeah, I mean, but, uh, you know, I think what we've been seeing, uh, including on Saturday, is this uh, desire to put some of these other individuals back, uh, you know, into the limelight, the glow of Warren and Charlie, and it's sort of happening slowly. So you've, you know, you've got Greg Abel, who's going to be the new CEO, and then Todd and Ted, who are going to be, I guess, the co-chief investment officers, sort of starting to uh, get into some of the spotlight, not much, but some. And, uh, you know, that's a recognition that, uh, you know, no one gets out alive here. So it's quite possible, this is the other theory, that, uh, you know, this is something those two guys wanted to do. 
and uh, Warren kind of said, okay, you're, you know, I'm not going to be here at some point anyway, so, you know, you might as well, uh, you know, you know, make your choices, make your bets, and live with them. So this could be part of their, you know, ongoing education. Obviously, they've chosen other stocks in the past. Uh, I think they may even be responsible for choosing Apple, which uh, Warren said on Saturday was, you know, their greatest investment ever. Uh, so I guess, you know, you win some, you lose some. This one was a clear uh, loser, which I think was, uh, frankly, entirely predictable. I I'm not uh, Warren Buffett, and I don't give investment advice, but... Uh, I never understood uh, the logic uh, for this company being back together, uh, nor is there a logical uh, buyer at this point, again, unless uh, Sherry wants to sell to some private equity firm. Well, let's talk about that. I mean, there there is still like, there is still hope for this company. I mean, they do have this studio, which has incredible assets, CBS also in an, an incredible library. Maybe this company doesn't totally make sense together as a streaming play, when the profits they're actually generating are on, of course, the linear TV side and at box office, and both of those have been trending down. I mean, especially pay TV, of course, is in this sort of inexorable state of decline. But if they were able to find buyers for, for different components of this company, I mean, there's perhaps more value locked up in the company than we can see. I mean, they could sell Paramount Studios to Netflix. They could, as you said, perhaps sell the CBS and the linear assets to somebody like Apollo. Does that feel like it's increasingly inevitable or, or do you see other kind of hiccups there? Uh, well, Ben, it is, it's funny that you ask it that way because that implies selling it in pieces, which if that's what you're going to do, you should have kept them apart to begin with. Number two, of course, the tax consequences of selling it in pieces are pretty substantial because I'm sure the tax basis in these assets is extremely low. So it's one thing if you sell the stock of the company for stock, which would probably be a deal that she would do, and then you can you know defer the taxes and do some tax planning. If you sell uh, the assets individually with a low tax basis for big gains, then there's going to be a tax at the uh, Paramount Global level, which is not going to be tax efficient, Ben. And so, you know, if you put your M&A advisor hat on for a second, you, you know, you'll everybody would quickly conclude that that's not the way they want to go. I don't know how Sherry gets out of this. Obviously, Trump were to get reelected, then there'd be uh, a different regulatory environment probably. Right now is probably the worst regulatory environment to try to get a deal like this with a existing uh, competitor slash player done. Yeah, and, and the FCC right now is, is deadlocked, right, where they've got two Democrats and two Republicans. Biden hasn't put in a fifth tie-breaking vote. But I know one of the big questions before that regulatory body is whether they will eventually um, dispose with this rule preventing you from owning two different broadcast networks. That, that could unlock a lot of other possibilities. Yeah, I don't. I, I really don't see that uh, changing. I just like I don't see the rule that prevents a foreigner from buying uh, a television uh, network. Uh, you know, those seem sacrosanct to me, but things do change. But I really don't see either one of those changing. And you know, you know, what's what's the point of owning both anyway? Uh, they're both linear TV is in secular decline, and so now you're gonna own two of them uh and you know they're they have such distinct brands you can't like 
you know, I think with CNN and, and NBC, you could sort of mishmash them together, plop them together. And, you know, you know, one's your cable, one's your broadcast. And, you know, you could you could make a go of that. And I think that would get a regulatory muster. Uh, you know, the lot, you know, Sherry, you know, had been wanting to do this for so long. You know, she's not really in the business of listening to other people and taking advice. I don't think, you know, she was on a mission. She accomplished the mission. And now she has to sort of live with the consequences of it, which is a, a stock price that's sort of setting into the West. Of course, you know, sending Paramount Global off to the private equity chop shop is one possibility. But yeah, Sherry, you know, she had this very soap operatic battle with her father uh, to, to get the company from him. She fought off the girlfriends. She fought off Les Moonves. You know, she, she ignored... Unbelievable. She ignored Bill Cohen's advice and merged these companies together. And now, yeah. you know, she she's wants... She's a Jedi. <laughs> she's a Jedi. And, and she, wants a, she wants some kind of Hollywood ending. Um, and certainly, at least looking at the stock this past week, it feels like maybe that happy ending is sort of slipping away from her. I mean, Ben, nobody can predict the future, uh, uh, but I, um, you know, I'm just not feeling it. I just don't see where uh, the opportunity is going to come from. Yeah, Bill, I've, I have no idea what will happen, but it was so much fun to talk through all the different possibilities with you. And, um, you know, we'll be watching and reporting in, in real time as this thing comes together uh, or doesn't. That's the fun of it. Bill, thanks as always. Thank you, Ben. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13, and produced by Ben Landy, executive editor at Puck. Puck.